How you doing, everybody? And thank you for joining me for another episode of Adulting With. My name is Patrick Davey, and today I am adulting with Jamie Woldvogel. She is owner of Behavior Best, which is a company where she deals with child behaviors. And she talks about different little things to help yourself out, things that her company does for you, even with teachers, schools, and a lot of different things. Jamie and I have known each other for almost 20 years on and off there, but she is an amazing person with amazing personality and knows her stuff. So if you have any child issues or want to learn more about it, listen to the podcast and uh, let's start there. All right, ladies and gentlemen, Jamie Waldvogel. How are you doing, everybody? And thank you for joining me today for another Adulting With. My name is Patrick Davey, and I'm very blessed to have with me uh, Jamie Waldvogel. How are you doing, Jamie? Did I? I'm wonderful. Thanks for asking. <laughs> I, I, uh, you, you and I were just talking uh, before we got started here, and you brought up a, a very uh, important thing. You know, I was, I, I got Jamie on the phone with me, you know, practicing the social distancing and doing all the good things that go along with that. But you mentioned how in 30 years you want to be able to talk with your kids and family and coworkers and everything there and know that, have that conversation with them that we survived this plague. Yeah. And I think not only survived it, but really thrived through it and learned new things and, you know, spent quality time together. And I think, um, yeah, it's important for my kids. I don't want them to feel the stress of it all that some of the adults might feel. And I want them to just feel happy and that their mental health is well, you know, and that that's my goal. And so in 30 years, when we look back at this, it's like, hey, that was a fun time at home, you know, with mom. And like I said, playing outside a lot, you know. Well, there's so many things that we have the opportunity to do right now. As And I've actually been shocked by myself having the the outlook that I have has been amazingly positive because I look at it and almost like you, like I will never have this time with my children ever again. And so to take yeah. advantage of those moments, you know, I'll be working. I have the opportunity to work from home right now and I might go upstairs. Like I need to go get something to come back right downstairs and Bo will stop me and be like, Hey dad, will you play a game with me? And like, I, I know that I have 10 minutes to play a game. I most certainly do. I can back up whatever I'm trying to accomplish can wait 10 minutes for my child. And that's going to mean the world to them when we start, when the world starts going back into its position again. Well, and you and I both have little ones that will be heading into kindergarten next year. And so I think that's an important thing too, you know, that we've been trying to hold on to those last moments of our little babies, you know, we're <laughs> right, having anymore. Right. And they're both just a few months apart. And so I feel like it's a blessing that we have more time that we didn't anticipate at the end of the, you know, last years of their little preschool time. And so, um, you know, I know that that's a blessing for Bo and my Silas as well. Absolutely. So, you know, with all the time right now that we are spending at home, I know that there's a lot of parents that are probably struggling uh, with their smaller children, especially. And one of the best things is that, uh, that I get to talk to you about is the company that you own, you own is behave your best. And I was really thinking about like, how am I going to explain your business about, you know, to everybody? And I'm like, I'm not the person to do that at all. So I'm going to allow you to explain uh, the business you own behave your best. Thank you. Well, I, you know, am a child behavior expert. And so um, most behavior analysts find themselves serving children with either developmental disabilities, or we sort of wait around until behavior of 
neurotypically developing children get bad enough, and then we intervene. Usually it's like kindergarten, first, second grade when, you know, behavior and development have been going along just fine until now it's bad enough to interfere with their education or whatever environment they're in. And could be coaching, it could be at, you know, baseball practice that it's showing up or at swim lessons or on play dates or at school. And so most behavior analysts, don't really get a chance to help with behavior until it's so bad that somebody is desperate for help. And so my mission is a little bit different. You know, I have two boys. Um, I started my company when my oldest was just six months old. And I've basically raised them as I've raised this company. And so my mission is to find parents who don't sort of want to settle with the, I call it old school way that we were raised, you know, with a lot of like consequences and, and punishments and things that may be more appropriate when our kids get to be a little bit older, like, you know, middle school years and high school, of course, those types of things are going to be helpful, but more so in our young children in preschool years, you know, in grade school years, they're using unwanted behavior in most cases because they just don't have all the skills yet. And so if we can really reframe how we think about unwanted behavior, we don't even call it naughty or bad or problem behavior or challenging behavior. We call it unwanted behavior because that's what it is. Very objectively, we just don't want to see it anymore. And so that covers everything from the whining or the minor talking back or rolling their eyes at you all the way up to like the knockdown drag out tantrums of toddlers or even teenagers. And so we want to look at behavior in a different way and really um, empower parents to look in, in this generation, to look at behavior in a different way and realize that we can be the generation of parents that says, you know what, I can do better for my kids when it comes to behavior. And by focusing on teaching new skills and, and focusing on what we wanted them to do instead of the unwanted behavior, we really can teach lifelong skills that, you know, don't keep sort of popping up. And so we do two things at Behavior Best. We consult in families' homes and help with behavior that way. And so we can do that over the phone. We have teleconsultation where we use Zoom to see in your home and then call you and kind of, you know, coach you through earbuds. And then we also go into family homes in the Twin Cities of Minnesota, but also um, in the Chicagoland area. And so that's one part of our company with the goal being teaching parents to understand behavior has a purpose for your child and it's usually because they don't have skills yet, and we have to teach that. The second part, I'm going to pause for a drink. <laughs> okay. A little tickle in my throat. Sorry. The second part is that we have to really realize that not only are we teaching new skills, but then in homes and families' homes, but then we have to empower teachers with the understanding of behavior. So the other half of Behavior Best is providing professional development and continuing education in daycares and preschools. And we're just now starting to dabble in some K-6 programs as well, with the focus again being like, let's teach all kids how to wait for things instead of hitting their friends and, you know, how to ask nicely for things instead of taking things, how to accept it when somebody tells us no, instead of, you know, flying off the handle and demanding that thing over and over and over and over again, how to move on when we don't get our way you know, all these life skills that we're seeing a lot of adolescents today don't have because they didn't learn them when they were two, three, and four, and five. And so our mission is to, in those two environments, homes and daycares and schools, as early as possible, teach all kids that 
skills are missing and we can teach those to replace the behavior, the unwanted behavior. And in a lot of cases, prevent the unwanted behavior. I mean, I get stories all the time of my staff going into daycares and they're in the baby rooms and they're helping the, the baby teachers, the infant teachers understand how to get a new baby who's, you know, never been in this setting away from their parents to stop crying all day. And, you know, to learn how to wait for attention and to be able to engage with the toys that are there and participate instead of just crying all day, you know, and the teacher having to always hold them because that's all they can do to get them to stop crying. But they can't hold all of them at once, right? So it's amazing to see how we can teach these things really early and then the same thing, waiting for toys. We can teach that to 15-month-olds and, you know, 9-month-olds. We don't have to wait till it's bad enough. And that's kind of my mission is to really get to children, all children, before you even think, oh, that's annoying. My parenting tools aren't working. So you, you said it in here. So you said, you know, talk about very small, like infants. Like I have a buddy uh, that I was talking to the other day. He has got twin daughters that they go to daycare still, like right now, but they have lesson plans for infants. Yeah. Does that make sense to you? Okay, so that's where like that's where my brain just kind of like how do you like how how do you have a lesson plan for an infant that just doesn't I mean, maybe you can explain that very briefly of how how that starts. Yeah, so you know you think about the different parts of infant development and everything from engaging with toys to interacting with people to learning how to you know sit in a chair and or high chair to eat and all of those different little skills how to wait for you know attention and wait for things. And so, yeah, they have all of these um, milestones that they reach in infancy, just like they do. And so it's not that those kids who aren't going to a daycare are missing out on anything. It's just a way to make sure that quality indicators are met. And so it's, it's also part of, you know, as a parent, deciding on a quality program. There's a difference between keeping my child, you know, alive all day <laughs> versus providing a quality, you know, enriched environment of learning. And that's kind of what the goal is. And so it just depends on what each family's goal is. And of course, the more educational content they provide and the more of a curriculum there is for those infant programs, the more, you know, expensive it's going to be, the the bigger the cost is in most cases too. So. So even yourself, you said you go in the home, sometimes you'll even go into schools and help teach teachers and stuff. They support you, even yourself. I mean, you get to individualize with a child in a home. But is there a big difference between trying to teach, even for for teachers, like you have a classroom of kids, you're trying to kind of use the same protocol, but you also know that there are certain kids that you have to do different things for certain kids, depending on their behavior issues and stuff like that. And you'd explain all these things to teachers then at the same time, I would, I would assume. Right. You make a good point that there are no two children, even those twins you just mentioned that are way more alike than most, right? But you know, genetically, but there's no two children that are exactly alike and that have the exact same experiences and values and interests. And so what they learn in the world is different. And so there's things that the teachers can do to set up the entire classroom for success, preventatively using behavioral strategies. But um, there's also things that certainly are going to need individualization because behavior is as unique as the individual behaving. And so, you know, I think about in like, preschool classrooms where there's like 21 five-year-olds or four-year-olds, <laughs> you know, that there might be two or sometimes three teachers in that room. A big skill for those teachers to have is what we call using their attention powerfully and, and strategically. So it's, you know, using what we call doses of their attention. And so 
you know, as they're moving about the room, instead of just walking past children to get to your destination, let's, you know, give them each those little groups of kids, you know, that are playing in the pretend play area. Let's give them each a little dose of our attention, that whole little group as I walk by them. And strategically using their attention that way is really important because if we get back to the science of what we do, the children learn in a room full of divided attention, meaning the teacher will never be able to be one-on-one for long periods of time, you know, when there's a ratio of three to 21 or three to, or two to 20. And so what children learn is the unwanted behavior might work really well to get a teacher to come give attention and help and navigate, you know, a social problem or a difficulty with a peer. And so if teachers are proactively providing these doses of attention when everybody's still doing their, what they're supposed to be doing and there's no problem, they can prevent a lot of the unwanted behavior in the group setting. So if you know you have a child, so kind of that's the group way of looking at it, that the doses of attention are a strategy we can use for the whole group. But then let's just say there's a little friend named Toby. Let's just say Toby. And Toby likes to take things from his friends. And so when Miss So-and-so is doing a dose of attention, she might more strategically, with Toby's little group of friends, practice with him, what are you going to do if your friend has something that you want? And then Toby says, I ask. Well, they always say that, but they don't actually do it. And right. so then we practice. Okay, well, I have your toy. How do you get it from me? And this is, you know, the teacher practicing in that quick little dose of attention. So that way they can learn some strategies that help preventatively with the whole group, things that the whole group can benefit from, like classroom management strategies. But then we also, like you described, you know, help the teachers individualize so that some of those children who might put out, you know, create bigger fires, if you will, um, we can keep those fires just smoldering and they don't ever inflame, if that makes sense. Oh, sure. So now, you know, you'd be able to have the opportunity to come into schools and teach, teach uh, um, the, the teachers around there kind of some some type of uh, things to deal with or how to deal with things. Is there a way that if there's a single parent that's never used your services to get some information, like are teachers allowed to talk to parents about like, this is how I deal with these situations with your son or daughter. These are things that I would do to try to prevent things or help the process that we're trying to do um, to, to, to get rid of any kind of bad behavior that they are having or unwanted behavior that they're having? Most definitely. So on our website, there is um, an opportunity for both parents and teachers for a free resource. And so for the parents, it's the same topic, but there's, like you said, subtle differences in, in the way that we apply it, depending on if we're in a family structure or in a classroom environment. And so pretend you are a light switch is one of our, you know, kind of hallmark strategies and techniques that's very evidence-based and, and grounded in science. And so that is available on our website, both for parents and for early childhood providers. And so once we start to get into K-12, the examples that we have on that video for early childhood start to get a little early childhood and we need them to have some school-age examples. So we do have a similar video for school-age kiddos, um, but that's not available on our website. So just the ones for parents and then early childhood providers. And it's free and anybody can download it at any time, as many times as they need to. Um, And then there are definitely, you know, other... Um, free resources on not only our website in the form of blogs and um, different things that I've done in the media, but also on our Facebook page where I, you know, tend to go live. And so specifically now during this unique time of K-12 
stay-at-home orders and social distancing and everybody um, really working together to fight this coronavirus. I have been going live on my Facebook page, Behavior Best Minneapolis, with my two children um, to show parents how to apply these techniques. And so, you know, sometimes when I do a webinar or when I talk to a parent on a call, it's like, oh, that makes so much sense, Jamie. Thank you. I will, you know, I'm going to go do that. And then they get in the middle of that unwanted behavior and a big tantrum ensues. And it's like, wait a minute, what did she say again? And so sometimes, you know, having multiple ways to get that content to, to parents is going to be helpful. Um, and so if you need more support than what's out there with the free education, um, there's other options for us to kind of get those tools to you as well. So you said that, you know, you've, you, you said before <laughs> when we were talking, you said that there's no two kids that are alike. And I've met both of your sons and they are not alike at all. So even for someone like yourself, I mean, you have to use two different styles for each of them because they each, you know, deal with certain situations differently. Is that something that you've had to practice even yourself with both your children trying to figure out what is the best way for, for each child? Yeah. And it's so great because this light switch technique that I'm talking about really applies to all behavior. We've kind of broken down the science for you. And the cool thing is that it is individual is, you know, individualized. And so I'm able to adapt the exact same strategies and, and techniques to one child, but slightly different way because of their age and their skills. And, you know, for example, I can interrupt my older child who's almost nine by just saying, I need you to stop doing that and he'll stop, you know, or give an instruction to stop behavior. Whereas a lot of parents would be like, yeah, that's why I'm calling you for help. I could never do that. Sure. My child wouldn't listen, you know? And so when you look at my younger child, that's the same case, you know, that right now I have to actually interrupt that behavior and not just tell him to stop because he's not at a place where I can do that yet. He doesn't have that, that baseline skill yet that my other son has. And so so true that, you know, they're very, and, it, and it's like the best thing about behavior is that we can adapt these evidence-based strategies that are grounded in science to their unique personalities, you know. So my younger one, we kind of joke he's kind of more of our bruiser, you know, that he's more likely to strike back instead of, you know, um, make the situation right in a more calm way like my older one has been. And so that takes a little bit more effort then for me to prevent those moments, a lot more of that practicing the skills I want him to use instead. Whereas my older one, I can literally just now tell him the rules and ask him, you know, hey, what do you think should happen if, if you do that again? And we come up with an agreement, you know, of what the consequence might be. And rarely do I ever need to actually deliver that consequence because he corrects his behavior right quick. Um, so yeah, you're right that we have to, we have two unique blessed children that are, you know, individual as their, you know, their names tell them they are. But then we also can use the same strategies just adapted to meet their needs and the skills that they currently have. And so think about it more as like each stage of their development, I'm teaching new skills to empower them. And so because they're at different stages and ages, um, they're going to need different things at each time. And going back to your friend with twins, even those families with twins, you know, we find it, you know, we will never claim those of us who don't have twins or multiples to know what it's like, because it's very different than just having two children close in age. Oh, absolutely. Um, <laughs> one of our consultants has twins and she will, she will let you know is very different. Um, 
than just having three separate children. And so the thing is, they, you, you know, all the strategies still are applicable and we can, you know, embrace their individualization. And that means also teaching new skills. So it's like, you know, one of them might be, you know, stubborn, if that's the word, and the other one might be more easygoing. But the skills that we need to teach might be the stubborn child needs to learn what their boundaries are and how to follow instructions at first time most of the time. And the one who's more easygoing needs to learn how to kind of have more assertiveness, for example. So, you know, neither is wrong or bad, but both children always, at every stage of their development, all have things they can be working on. And, and we can be teaching them to better their behavior as parents. So staying on the, on, on the topic of that, the light switch there, I, uh, myself and Aaron had the opportunity to use your services with one of your consultants and stuff with Bo when he was younger because he had some behavior things and he had some pooping issues. And it was fantastic. You know, a lot of the different skills that, that we learned, we still use today. And all of a sudden, Aaron and I will sometimes, every once in a while, like, we forgot about this. And we'll go back and we'll, you know, reinforce a few things through there. But one of the biggest things that I learned through all that and I still recognize today is that not only do do children have that light switch and you have to recognize when they're paying attention and when they're not, but so do parents. And if you can recognize that as a parent, if your light switch is off, you're not going to listen to your child either. And so that's a two way street that they have to try to, as the parent there, you have to recognize that to be able to make sure that everybody's on the same page to make sure everybody's moving forward the way that you, they should be moving forward and to be able to, to reconcile whatever's happening in the house at that point in time like the biggest lesson you could possibly take from from parenting is that in order to effectively parent we have to have what we say is our switch on that you know we have to stay in a place where we're calm i don't know if you've seen the meme that is floating around social media that says an escalated adult cannot de-escalate an escalated child oh and that that's perfect i mean that just nails it on the head absolutely exactly and so um we don't we talk a lot about how we have to have our think our switches, you know, that when we expect them to learn new behavior, our switch has to be on, but so does the child. And so that means it can't be when we're rushing out the door in the morning. You know, we just need to have strategies to get through those moments and instead teach what we're needing them to do, like follow instructions or stay independent and get dressed or whatever the, the problem is in the morning that's, you know, making a rush and a stress to get out the door. We have to figure out what skills that child is missing during that time so that we can teach those when both of our switches are on, which is not going to be when we're running out the door. And so we help parents kind of like manage the hard times until we get those skills built. But the really cool thing is, and I know you saw this with Bo too, is that children learn so fast, like it's their job to learn. And so if we present the thing we're learning in a way that makes sense to them, which is what this light switch does, it helps the child learn it the fastest way. And so if the brain is, is in our favor and working with us instead of against us, the child is going to learn it so quickly. And so one of the things you mentioned is so important is, is our adult switches. And I'll tell you, when we go into a parent's home or into a child's you know, school or classroom, the first thing my team is trained to do is sort of assess the adult switch because I can't go into a classroom and help that adult with you know, a child's behavior, if, if the adult switches off, they're, they're not going to be able to receive my message either. And that is the biggest lesson that teachers learn. And so we might spend the first couple times we go into a classroom and that's how we get to know a teacher too, is, you know, what, what does their switch off look like? What does their switch on look like, you know, when they're at their best or, you know, um, doing things well. And, and so 
if their switch is off, we have strategies of how to help that adult get their switch back on before we try to teach them or, or, you know, interact with them. And so we have some places, you know, we work in a couple of school districts where, man, by the time we get there at 9 a.m., the teachers have been through some, you know, two hours of intense, really difficult behavior in some really difficult parts of the city that we consult in. And so their switches are hard off when we show up. And sometimes that's the case when we walk into a parent's home for the first time too. And so it is going to do us no good if we try to then start hammering down the lesson. We first have to get their switch on. And a lot of times the way that we do that is we start demonstrating. We start showing the adult how it can look when it's, when it's you know, uh, more applicable or when it's um, more uh, related to what that child needs. So, yeah, this adult switch has to be on in both environments, the home and if we take it even one step further, you know, um, my husband and I, we have been together almost 23 years, um, married almost 16 years, and that's one of the biggest parts of our relationship that I, you know, I'm really proud of is that we have learned a long time ago to respect each other's switches, you know, that he knows more than anybody else and even probably before me sometimes when my switch is off <laughs> and vice versa. I can see it in him and maybe recognize it in him before he can recognize it in himself when his switch is off. And so as a married couple, it's been super helpful for us to say, you know, hey, I can tell you need to go get your switch on, like take a break from the kids or whatever and, you know, go for a walk or run or whatever you need to do to get your switch on. Um, and, you know, to even take it then one step further, we've done talks for, you know, people who are in like, HR and work with employees and you know that I've heard HR people tell me this is mind-blowing because when people come into my office their switch is always going to be off they know it's not there for a good you know they're not there for a good reason <laughs> so right now you know as an HR person I can make sure to get that person switch back on first instead of trying to discipline them when their switch is off and so you know I think looking even at what you do Pat you know for helping adults with their um, personal training and their physical and mental and, and um, wellness, you know, making sure that their switch is on before, you know, you push through the lesson or the workout for that day is a, you know, way to really support them and help them. And I'm sure you've learned with your clients, like each of them has a different thing that you do and you probably innately help them get their switch on without even calling it that. But, and, you know, they each have a different way. And so, what we do with kids and how we teach parents about their child's behavior really applies to all human interaction because we have this, this brain of ours that impacts our ability to do, you know, the right thing in some of those difficult moments. And so hopefully that helps. I've been, I've been lucky enough to be in the fitness world for almost a decade now. And I, I've just learned over the last couple of years, or at least paid attention to what you were saying about people's light switch of when they're on, they're off, when they need help turning it on, all of the things that go along with that. And that's one of those things that when you when you find your rhythm on how to do this, and it's a person-to-person thing, you know, most certainly person-to-child, parents, t- teachers, whatever that is. But when you find it, you're just, it's almost this moment of relief where you're like, all right, I know how to deal with this. I know how to deal with this person. Yeah. I know how to do that. And it's, it's, very, it's very comforting when you have those things. So I know that, you know, with what you do, you have a lot of, you're very passionate in what you do and you enjoy it a lot. And I can only imagine there's a lot of continuing ed that go along with that. Just making sure you're staying up on the newest information. But just like a lot of people, they can go on Google and 
typing whatever off and like, oh, the internet told me to do this. Now, how much time do you ever go through like a continuing education type of stuff and you're like, I will never use that or things yeah. that pe- people need to be aware of on the internet? Yeah, I mean, I think I am blessed to, you know, have the training in behavioral psychology where we are trained to really rely on data and make database decisions. And um, I think that that's not the case in all of psychology or all of the parenting or coaching world. And so, um, you know, I think that the part of database is what allows us to continue growing. And so we use, you know, your child's data and progress to inform our decisions about the next step of that plan. And so, um, you know, because it's so individualized, each step of the way, we have to, you know, use that child's progress and data to then determine what that next step is. And so we are also then trained to, you know, be very um, mindful consumers of research and, you know, other types of, um, what do you call it, propaganda, I guess, out there. And so, um, for example, I, you know, had a recommendation from a doctor of mine personally. And, you know, the doctor said this, you know, medication has been effective in 72% of patients. So then I go read the research because I'm that trained and skeptical. And I pull out the journal article and I read it and I'm like, nope, he misled me. What it says is there's four markers of progress in this study. But in order to, to say somebody made progress, only one of those markers had to be improved, not all four. So when they said 72%, that just meant one of the four markers improved and for an average of 72% of people. Well, in my situation, only one improvement out of the four is not going to make a better improvement in my quality of life. So for me to take that medication, based on that data, that he, the, the way he described it, I would have made a totally different decision. Does that make sense? I'm not sure if I'm describing it correctly, but... No, it most certainly does. It means that, you know, if, if anybody that tells you anything, more or less, you should most you should do a little research yourself just to make sure that, that things are going, especially if you're unsure, if you don't like the answer, all that kind of stuff, get a second opinion. And with your, your education, your knowledge base, you know how to reach in and research what was just told to you to be like, mm, yep. And you found there's a few little hidden things. He kind of gave you the information, but he didn't tell you all of it. He told you what you what he wanted to, you to know. Yeah, so you have to be like an informed consumer, and I think that is no different in parenting. You know, that there's you can Google anything, like you said, but who is the source? You know, anybody can call themselves a parent coach. There is no, you know, regulation, there is no license or certification. Um, and so, the, I, and let me say that again there is a certification, but it's not by an accredited body, it's by a person who decided they are a really good coach. And they want to make money training other people to be really good coaches. And so, is that like somebody going on Facebook and telling telling the yeah. world that they're a life coach? And then, yep, everyone yeah. just come to they're me. Credentialing <laughs> okay. themselves, All and right. then they're credentialing others. But it's like, who are you? What's your accrediting body? You know. Um, and so that's the kind of thing where when you read a blog from a parenting, you know, expert, so to speak the way to know, you know, is this credible is to really, you know, kind of look at wh- where is that person's training and education coming from? Was it a weekend training that they got some certification or was it something that required, you know, an advanced degree or some level of supervision? Um, there's a lot of even like two-year degree programs that, you know, require you then to go, 
you know, practice under someone like a CNA or different medical fields even. So for parents, I think to be educated consumers, um, you know, looking to see where the source came from and blogs are good from experts as long as you know those experts' credentials. Um, but the other kind of part of it, I think, for parents to really, you know, be looking at is that because behavior is so individualized and that's what parenting is. Parenting is teaching our kids right and wrong behavior, basically, if you sum it up in a nutshell, right? So if we think about, you know, that being our biggest goal for children, um, being able to look at parenting and look at behavior and realize this is an individualized thing. The problem with a lot of like books and parenting resources out there is that that book has not done an assessment of why is my child doing this? Because the reason that your child is doing it is very different than the reason your neighbor's child is doing that or your cousin's child or your friend's child. And so that book might tell you some awesome evidence-based parenting strategies, but they may be completely irrelevant to your situation and might even make it worse. So here's an example. Let's say that your child is, you know, hitting when it's time to clean up and the parenting books tell you to give a timeout. And maybe even your pediatrician tells you to do that. And so you give a timeout. And then before you know it, you're given a timeout every day and not just for cleanup, but now you're giving a timeout because they refuse to put their brush their teeth or they refuse to put their pajamas on or they're hitting their brother for some other reason now. And what your child is in, in effect learning is I get out of stuff I don't want to do. And hitting is a really effective way to do that. And so a timeout actually made it worse because the reason the child was doing it was to get out of the cleanup. So then we just fueled that fire, letting them out of the cleanup. And then we know that that was the case because it kept happening more and more and more in other situations, meaning it didn't improve cleaning up. The child actually kept using the unwanted behavior and, and never used the, the cleanup behavior. And so that's where we have to understand why is my child doing this? And it's going to be both reasons related to how it works for them, meaning like, oh, it gets me attention or it gets me out of something. But it's also going to be they're missing skills. Like they don't know how to follow through and clean up and follow instructions or whatever it might be. So someday I'll get back to writing a parenting book. I actually went to a writing in nature retreat. And I think it was probably four or five years ago now. And every April, I seem to get this little, you know, oomph to want to get back to writing. And it's actually sitting up one of the tabs in my computer that's open right now. And I have this book that I'm writing, and I'm trying to accomplish exactly what I'm telling you is wrong with all the parenting books out there, is that they haven't done an assessment of what your child needs. And so what I'm trying to do in this book is walk a parent through you know, is this why your child's doing it? Okay, well then do this. Is this why your child's doing it? Okay, well then do this. Is this one of the skills they're missing and that's why this is happening? Okay, great, do this. So that you as the parent can do the assessment part that makes all those other parenting books fail. Does that make sense? Well, you have to be able to pay attention to the things that work and don't work. I mean, it's kind of trial by fire going like, okay, this 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 didn't work, this didn't work. Oh, okay, his behavior changed when I did this. Let's do this a couple more times and see if that's still working. Now we know we can throw away the other two. We can keep working and building off of the one that does work and go through that. Yes. And so that's one part of it. And what you just described is how I was referring earlier about using your child's data to guide your decision making. Right. Right. But, you know, what I'm also trying to accomplish is, is realizing that we don't necessarily have to go through too much trial and error. 
if we do that assessment part first and understand why is my child doing this? What skills is my child missing? And then you won't have to so much trial and error because you've customized it to the, to the reason. You've kind of gotten to the root, if you will. You've matched the plan with the reason. I gotcha. Okay. So yeah. So if, if getting that assessment done first is going to be huge just to skip a lot of the extra garbage that you, you, you may be doing or causing more issues at the beginning. Mm-hmm. And trial and error isn't bad. You know, I love, it's only bad when you do what you, you know, said others might not. So for example, if you trial and error, but you don't learn from it and drop things that aren't working and don't pay attention to the results, then trial and error is just a disaster of parenting, right? <laughs> right, right. No offense to anybody who might be feeling that because you're just doing your best, right? You're just right. trying, pulling at strings. But the idea that you described is that you're paying attention to the outcome of that and realizing that there's patterns in the behavior. And so if you're not paying attention, that's when you're going to, you know, inadvertently make the behavior, you know, worse. Um, But I think, too, my goal is to even get ahead of it one step further so that we minimize the trial and error part that parents go through because who has time? You know, let's just enjoy our kids. Let's, Let's minimize the time that we're trying to figure out what works. So now, are there any certain like trigger words for kids that that, that are more often than not when uh, when it comes down to behavior things like the word stop or no or any of that stuff? Are, they, are those big trigger words for kids? Um, I think it depends on the kid. You know, in our society today, though, I would agree that the word no, meaning when a child is told no, versus when they're you know, telling you no, because it's very different. <laughs> right, right. Um, but yeah, when they're asking for things and we're telling them no, or when they're, you know, demanding a certain way and they can't have their way. And that's really a, a, something that is unique to this generation of parenting that is sort of a product of the impulsivity with which we're raising our children, meaning the whole world thrives and puts a high value on things that come fast, quick, and convenient. And children, our, our children see that. They see us on you know, Netflix and getting what episode we want, when we want it, you know, as soon as we want it, they see us using Amazon Prime and they see us doing drive up pickup and all these things that make our lives faster and convenient. And I'm not saying these things are bad, but what I'm saying is this is the world we're raising them in and it is our normal. And all of the technology, you know, that gets things to us quickly and even information, you know, my son now can read and write and, and so he can just go right to Google and Google it whenever he wants an answer to a question. And I was talking with a teacher friend of mine the other day, and it's like, kids don't have to wonder anymore. And there's so much learning and creativity that comes in wondering, you know, because they can just go Google it and get the answer. Like, bam, right there at their fingertips. Like, I used to have to, like, walk to a library, (laughs) you know, research. Really do some digging to make it. Yeah. And so because of the world we're raising them in, and so when your parents say, like, well, that would have never happened when you were a kid, or I would have never let that fly. And it's like, yep, but you weren't raising children in the world that we are today. And it's a, it's a legit argument. It's not just a cop out. And so what I mean by that is we actually have to teach our children self-control like we never in a generation before have, because everything is coming at rapid speed to them. That's that impulsivity piece. The opposite of that is self-control. And so that's why we're teaching toddlers and infants how to wait for things. Instead of just giving them that thing when you're going to hand it to them anyway, make them wait for a couple of seconds. And that little bit of self-control that you're building in where otherwise they wouldn't have had that opportunity, we see this, you know, in so many situations where the child is struggling at daycare and 
parents are having no problems at home. Well, at home, there aren't 15 other kids for me to wait for. And so the skill of waiting isn't needed at home. It never comes up because I don't have to wait for anything. And not because my parents are like coddling me or, you know, anything like that, but just there's not much I have to wait for. And so in those situations, it's remarkable how we have the parents at home who are having no behavior problems create opportunities when the child's at their best, when the child switches on to practice waiting. It's remarkable how then the child is now able to start having the waiting still at school and instead, you know, stop using aggression in a lot of cases. And so the impulsivity piece is something that we have to like actually actively combat in parenting today where generations before us, I mean, I had to wait till Saturday morning to watch cartoons. I don't know about you, but. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. I was up early in the morning to watch cartoons on Saturdays. That's all I had. Yeah. Right on. Yeah. And self-control was literally like, you know, coming home at dark, you know, when the streetlights came on, that was how you showed your self-control because there wasn't the shiny bells and whistles and things all day long coming at you to have to, you know, kind of respond to. So it's, it's a legit truth that the thing where, you know, the environment we're raising our kids in is very different. And that's why the sort of old school, if you will, I mean that with ever such, you know, endearment that the old school ways of parenting, which by the way, weren't necessarily, you know, um, governed by any kind of science or psychology or what we know about humans and behavior. It was just what we did because that's what the Bible basically told people to do, you know, in terms of like old school parenting. I talk about like the consequences and punishment and teaching them that that's not okay. And it's like, they'll learn that way when they're a little bit older. But I think us as a generation have sort of realized that isn't working for our young, young kids. And part of the reason it isn't working is because of the impulsivity piece that's working against us. So kids are like punishment. Who cares? I got 20 other things I can access anyway. You know, this is, it's, it's weird because, you know, Aaron and I talk a lot about different things happening and uh, I will say the words to her. I'll say the words. I I'd had to deal with this when I was young. This is how my parents handled it, and I turned out just fine. And usually when I say those words, and you know a little bit about my past, she laughs at me and she says, you are not fine. And <laughs> and it's one of those things like, all right, you're right. Okay. And it just brings me back being like, yeah, you're, you're right. Like it was definitely a little harsher. It was a little more aggressive, but that's how they dealt with things at that point in time. And that self-control part now is that, so that's, again, my biggest thing with self-control is food. Like I have a hard time. Like I, ha- I put food on my plate, the, the clean plate club, all that stuff. I know if I put food on there, it will be, it will be gone. And this is where you're just talking about kids having that self-control issue right now. And that's why we're, you know, when it comes at least nutrition, we have this obesity problem when it comes to small children and stuff, because a lot of parents are just like, just fine, whatever, just put it in there, whatever. But they just nonched on these screen time, shoving chips or whatever's on there at the exact same time, almost like, almost like blind eating through all of this stuff. So that self-control mm-hmm. and that necessity of that needs, because Bo, even right now, he's he's asking for treats sometimes what 15 times a day. And I'm like, mm, let's just redirect you to something else. And once he's redirected and like, oh yeah, I'll do this, then he'll be good for a little while. And it's just that little constant, but kids now want to have those there's immediate things like going on the internet and finding information. Like they get that now. They want their treat now. They want their drink now. They want whatever that is now so that fuel that getting them that that little bit of knowledge in them like yeah i can sit here for a few moments and not have my thing is going to be okay because you know it's going to come at some time right 
I would love for parents, you know, listening to for just like one hour or even a day, write down like two columns on a piece of paper. Situations where your child showed, you know, self-control or had the opportunity to and situations where they, you know, showed impulsivity or had the opportunity to. And it's unbelievable when you really look at the world that we're raising them in, how we have to tip the scales the other way. You know, there's so much um, immediacy coming at them and impulsivity is, is such a part of our world that um, y- you'll be surprised. You know, I've done this this um, a- activity or, or task and it's unbelievable how the scales are just totally tipped in the favor of impulsivity. And so we wonder why there's more kids, you know, that can't sit still and are diagnosed with things and whatnot. It's like, yeah, that's why we can start teaching it when they're, you know, two and three and four. And you'll see from the videos of my kids, you know, they're not perfect. They're just like anybody else's kids, but they have a mom who has a unique set of tools and has literally been using them from their birth. And so, you know, when you watch those videos with me interacting with our kids, people say, you know, it shows me I've got so much work to do with my kids. And I'm like, that's not the case. It's just, you know, baby steps to um, figuring out how, you know, what kind of human do we want to raise? And I think that most of us that are listening to this or, or, you know, having conversations like this with our friends do care about the humans that we are raising and do want to make sure that they, you know, have lifelong skills. So, back to the nutrition or even thinking about, you know, the ability to accept no for an answer. You know, people might think I'm crazy, but when we are two and three and four, or when we learn how to accept no for an answer and move on and be flexible, and if they don't have that now, what is that going to look like when they're in their first types of relationships with, you know, peers and, you know, somebody's making advance on another human and they're saying, no, I don't want that. And that person can't accept no for an answer that's going to be a problem, right? That's going to be a huge problem. And I can see that already starting uh, a little bit already with uh, some of our older, uh, you know, people that are in the teenage things. And even with Laura, sometimes like she has a hard time. I mean, she's also in middle school. So whatever, that's, that's a whole different conversation right there. But having that, having that skill set of knowing how to deal with no is, is going to be huge for all kids. And then think about us adults, you know, it's like how many, you know, I forget what the statistic is in our country of like the trillions of dollars in consumer debt that we have and how we as adults, you know, for example, if you don't have money for something, but you buy it anyway on credit, that's an example of an adult not accepting no for an answer. Like, no, you don't have enough money for that. You can't buy it right now. And, you know, those are all things that are a product of this like impulsive world that we're, we're living in. And it, it cuts into every piece of human behavior, like you said, from the things we eat and how we eat and our eating behavior to how we exercise or move our bodies to how we parent our children to all of it. It's unbelievable. And so um, if there's one thing that I could, you know, help parents um, learn is, first of all, the respect your own switch and go watch that light switch video. But then also realizing that, you know, if we do nothing to teach our children, you know, self-control when they're little, it's going to be a heck of a lot harder to teach it when they're older because they're going, you're going to have years of practicing the impulsivity. And so the exercise that I explained earlier, kind of making these two columns of behavior and what you're going to find is there's way more opportunities where the child is being very impulsive. And maybe there's not a lot of chances where they have to wait for things and, you know, complete other things first or whatnot in our world. So then as a family, you can start to, to tip the scales the other way and create opportunities that aren't currently there in your everyday routines where your child has to wait for something or, 
accept no for an answer and practice moving on. And so, you know, an example with my five-year-old, it's like, um, you know, every, we live three doors down from Target and it's like, we go to Target often before this whole, you know, pandemic. And there's a, there's a Starbucks, right? When you walk in and I made the mistake once of buying a $2 piece of cake on a stick. And so now most of the time when we walk into Target, my son says, mom, can we buy a cake pop? And I'm like, not today, Silas. And his first response is, can we get one next time we come, mom? Because that's what I taught him instead of flying off the handle. And then I say, we'll talk about that next time we come, Silas. <laughs> 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 that same conversation. But sure. then we move on and he accepts no and we go about our business at Target. And so even just the simple thing of teaching your child to say, well, when can I have that mom? And then to realize when they get the answer of when they can have it. So the, the knee jerk reaction instead of flying off the handle is, well, when can I have that thing you just told me no for? Because especially with toddlers and preschoolers and school agers, like they just want to know when they don't care about our no, because they want to know yes, when, and most of the time it's not a no answer. It's just a not right now for the types of things our kids are asking us for. And so if we can do a couple things, one is try a yes when. Yeah, you can do that after dinner or tomorrow. You know, and if they don't like that answer, that's okay. It might not fix everything. But then the idea that they can learn to accept no now when they're little so that as the types of things they have to hear know about become more and more difficult and, and sort of, you know, sophisticated, the child then has that skill. It's such an important skill. And so maybe the, the skill you teach them is just a new knee-jerk response of, well, when can I have that, Mom? Can I talk about that next time we come, Mom? Sure. Yeah, we can talk about that next time we come. Um, so hopefully some of those tools will help parents that are listening too. I hope so. Jamie, that is our time. That is a lot of things. And I told you before, I had a lot of questions for you. I didn't even get to half of them, which means that sometime in the future, when you actually get a chance to come to our home, we're going to sit downstairs. We're going to finish off all of the questions that go along with this. That sounds great. I look forward to it. So where, uh, opportunity. Oh, absolutely. So where can they find you online? So uh, Facebook, we have Behave Your Best Minneapolis. Um, you know, there are some things we put on Instagram, but I will admit our Instagram game is poor. <laughs> we are very good behavior analysts, but we are not experts at social media. And Fair so, enough. you know, give us a little grace, right? We'll stay in our own lane and be really good at changing behavior. Um, and then our website is um, Behave Your, Y-O-U-R, best.com. And so there's tons of resources there. Um, yeah, and thanks for the opportunity to share some of my gifts. Absolutely, Jamie. Thank you so very much. We will talk very soon. Thanks, Pat.